0: Good morning, reading in Jesus' name. As you can see from the scripture reading, we are planning to again be looking into the book of Revelation for a message. Most of our Bibles have the book of Revelation entitled as the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we look into the book of Revelation to see what we can learn about Jesus. We look into the book of Revelation to see what we can learn about Jesus. And as, we, as I've been studying in the book of Revelation, I have concluded that a study of Jesus' life without the book of Revelations is probably not complete. We get an incomplete picture of Jesus if we don't include Jesus as we see Him in Revelation. Jesus comes through in Revelation as the ultimate judge King of kings, Lord of lords, supreme ruler of all mankind of the earth and everything that he has created, supreme ruler. We don't see him quite in that way today, but there's coming a time when he will be that, and so we look forward to that time. The book of Revelation is then an unveiling of things not previously known and an unveiling and a revealing of Jesus. And so we can learn a lot of things, lots of things. We get a complete picture of Jesus by studying then also Revelation. The last time we looked into the book of Revelation, we looked at the church of Ephesus, and we want to continue our study on the seven churches as we find them here in Revelations chapter Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And um, this morning, I'd like to look at the church of Smyrna, the church of Pergamos, and also the church of Thyatira. And we didn't read about Thyatira this morning in scripture reading. It would have been a lengthy um, scripture reading, but we did look at Smyrna and Pergamos. And so we'd like to think about three of these churches here. And uh, later, then be looking at the other three sometime later. The church at Smyrna was located about 35 miles north of Ephesus, again, um, seaport city. And I just, uh, I just find it so interesting that uh, Paul, lots of Paul's ministry was in seaport cities. Lots of Paul's ministry was in seaport cities. It's also Paul also grew up in Tarsus, who which was a seaport city. Paul was familiar with the seaport cities. He was familiar with the culture of a seaport city, a culture with lots of and lots of people uh, in uh, from different parts of the world. so, as Paul was growing up, he saw people from various, lots of different parts of the world because he was growing up in a seaport city. And so when Paul was preaching, he, was, he gravitated to the seaport cities and uh, the kind of setting that he was familiar with. I think most times we, if we're looking at, um, so we're looking at outreach, we're looking at evangelism, most of us do the best in a, in a situation similar to where we grew up. Although God calls people to other situations, I believe, and uh, gives grace uh, for people to minister in various situations, and we have, in our churches, we have a gravitation toward the city in the recent years, and I believe that's good. But we find ourselves, most times we find ourselves being able to minister most effectively in the kind of situations that we grew up. Paul did that and was very effective with his ministry. Today, the city of, of Smyrna is the only city of the seven churches that has any form of prosperity. Some of the churches no longer, some of the cities that are represented in the seven churches no longer exist. Some of them are very, very, um, very much cities of poverty and um, are not prosperous anymore, but uh, Smyrna is, is a city that is still prosperous. The word itself means bitter. The word Smyrna means bitter, and it's probably referring to uh, the persecution that the church in Smyrna had faced. Um, if you look at, if you think about the seven churches representing seven time periods of church history, and I don't think it's taking the teaching of Revelation out of context to do that because Revelation is a book of prophecy. The seven churches also represent prophetic, um, have prophetic implications. And the book of Smyrna then represents the early church at the end of uh, the early church period uh, just before the time of Constantine, a period of intense persecution, at least in some parts of the Roman empire Intense persecution. If you look at Paul's life and his ministry, and you track his life through the through the um, the missionary journeys, you will find that Paul was being opposed by by the Jewish people many times. Jewish people were opposing Paul, and he was then also opposed by the Romans. He was also opposed by the Romans. One of the things the Romans, a lot of the Roman emperors, or a number of the, the Roman emperors did, which was a problem for Christianity, is they would require everyone to, in some way, give allegiance, uh, an ultimate allegiance to the emperor, and they would often do that uh, the, by um, by burning, uh, like burning a candle in in significance of the emperor, or sometimes even in um, in what they ate. It could give um, Allegiance to the emperor, and Christianity. The Christians, of course, could not do that, and so they were they were uh, persecuted for that. And uh, often they would have to go to a local authority and get a little certificate saying they have done this something in a, in a, an allegiance to an emperor. And they refused to do that. Didn't carry the didn't carry that. Um, Certificate and then if they were asked for the certificate, they were arrested because they were not carrying that. The city of Smyrna also had a heathen temple in honor of the Roman emperor Tiberius. And so there was lots and lots of idol worship in uh, the city of Smyrna. We read in verse 8, the idea of of Jesus, the idea of Jesus uh, being dead or having having died and now is alive comes through several times in this discourse on the Church of Smyrna. And I believe it's significant because Jesus is, through his teaching here, he's telling them, even if you face death, there's life after death. There's life after death, and you will, you will live. Uh, death is not the end, and death is not the, the ultimate uh, destination for our souls and spirits. We will live again, just as Christ also lived. In verse 9, then, he talks about their poverty and their riches. And we get here, in verse 9, we see that God's idea of being rich is not the same as people's, as ours. God says, you consider yourselves poor, but I consider, yourse- I consider you to be rich. I consider you to be rich because of the way that you're enduring this persecution. And uh, the persecution that was during this time was, was very intense, and people suffered People suffered a lot from persecution. But he was encouraging the church, there's going to be life and you're not, you're not poor, you're rich. And um, I think about that sometimes today, so it's so easy to just have a worldly view of riches and poverty. So easy just to have a worldly view of riches and poverty and think about, you know, so we are, they're considered probably some of the richest people in the world because of the resources we have and, and also because of the freedoms we have. We are rich because of our resources and freedom. There's probably, you know, in our country, we have not experienced war within our borders for many, many years, probably not since the Civil War, although we do have a lot of, um, we do have a lot of crime and so on, but not war, but not warfare. And there's probably a few things that cause poverty more than warfare. There's few things that cause poverty more than warfare. And you think about what the country of Ukraine is going through with warfare and how that is bringing the country to poverty. And uh, poverty, uh, warfare, and, um, and um, corrupt leadership are sources for poverty. And so the church here is, um, God considers them rich because of the way in they endure suffering. We're not, surf- we're, not, we're not persecuted today in the sense that, um, in the sense that we're not allowed to worship. And, uh, and I think there's a, we have a place in our worship service to thank God every time we meet for the privilege of being able to meet like this Privilege of being able to meet in freedom, and there's uh, even in times of persecution, God's word at times can be hindered. And during Anabaptist times, there were there were places, there were locations where the church was conti- was completely eradicated because of persecution. And so, while persecution can be a source of of strength, it can be um, not a, not a source of strength, but it can it can cause a Christian, a church to grow. It can cause a, a church to become stronger. It can also be very damaging to a church in a, in a given community. And the Anabaptist church, I believe, grew because of persecution, but there was also cases where um, where the church was annihilated in some areas. The other thing that I, that I have noted in times of persecution and I don't know, um, and I'm not sure how to put all this together, but, you know, like even with the Anabaptists, our Anabaptist forefathers, uh, so we have Conrad Rebel, Felix Monson, and George Blaurock, and, and in, in all three of those, neither of them had children that carried on their faith. Persecution is very damaging to passing on the faith to the next generation can be. So we thank God for the privilege of being able to meet in this way. I think, and, and with all of these churches, I want to end like our study on the church with some lessons that we can learn for ourselves. So we are not persecuted today like they would have been in the Church of Smyrna. Or, that, or during that time period. We're not persecuted in, that, in the same way that, that they were, but uh, I don't think that a proper response to persecution is just limited to persecution. We also need to learn to respond properly to the difficult things that come into our lives, whether it's persecution or sickness or financial setbacks, and so on. We need to learn to respond properly to those. And, and, uh, and I believe uh, looking at the Church of Smyrna can help us in that. In John 16, uh, 33 I'd just like to um, read that verse. We have that verse coming through in the, toward the end of, of uh, Jesus' ministry. John 16, verse 33, the last verse of the chapter, says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The word tribulation there is not necessarily talking about persecution, but it can be. It can be persecution, but He's talking about difficulties that come into our lives, hard times that come come into our lives. I think, if we're honest, we all face times like that. We all face hard times at times. And sometimes it's not physical. We don't face physical persecution. But uh, living in this world, even as a Christian, is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's hard. There's hard times that come in everybody's life. And so we need to learn to respond properly to that. In Philippians 4... Uh, verses 6 and 7, I'd like to just um, look at those verses here yet. Um, somehow it's always harder to find a book when you're standing up here. Philippians 4. Verses six and seven. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be known unto God. And the God of peace which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We have some verses here that talk about hard times that come into our lives. How, sh- how we should respond to those. Respond with thanksgiving. Um, and God of peace. Uh, the word peace comes, came through there and that verse in John 16, verse 33, also came through there. God is interested in bringing peace into our lives in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of tar- hard times, in the midst of difficulties. And I, I think as a church, we have, a, we have numerous examples here in church of people that have responded well to difficulties in their lives, to sickness, to the loss of loved ones, and uh, and just the difficulties that life can send for us. And I think it's wonderful to be able to have those kind of examples. Uh, Here's a statement that I'd like to give. It says, don't let prosperity and good times, prosperity or good times, make you arrogant. Don't let prosperity and good times make you arrogant and selfish. Don't let difficulties make you bitter. Sometimes." You know, we talk about proper response to hard times. Maybe we should also be talking about proper response to good times. Proper response to good times is a challenge, also as we look at that. I want to look at that uh, that, that whole idea a little bit more. If we look when we look at the Church of um, Laodicea, the third church that we have here is the Church of Pergamos. The Church of Pergamos represents Church Age, the Church Age from the time of Constantine at 313 to, the, to about uh, the year of 500, to about the year of 500, the beginning of the Dark Ages. During this time, the word Pergamos means, um, there's two ideas that come through. The idea in, in uh, the word, the meaning of the word is to unite. Uh, Is to unite, and it could actually be referring to the the union could actually be referring to marriage. But in this case, it's talking about the about uniting church and state. And Constantine did that, and so in the Nicene Council, he was he came to the council. There was um, thousands of people that came to the council he came to the council and they made him, uh, after he had legalized Christianity, actually made it um, the, the official Roman religion, he came to the council and, and they made him the moderator of the council. And so now we have the emperor, the political leader, also being the moderator of a church meeting. And that was a precedent then that that was set, and later, we, well, we find we find here in the Church of Thyatira where that was kind of brought to fruition, but uh, Constantine was the leader of the country and also the leader and, and the moderator of a religious, of a church meeting. It's difficult for us to understand the setting at that time because there were people who came to the council, Christians who came to the council with, with um, they were missing, some of them were missing arms, or, or they were crippled because of persecution. And here they came to a meeting where Christianity was legal and actually encouraged, and there was no persecution. And it was almost like a... It was almost like hypnotic for the Christians at that time to be able to come to a place like this. And so without a lot of discernment, they bought into the idea of the emperor being moderator of a, of a religious meeting and didn't, wouldn't have opposed that and didn't see, didn't look into the future far enough to see the union of church and state in this process. But during the, during the Anabaptist, um, during the Anabaptist Reformation, then if the Anabaptists would have bought into the idea of the union of church and state, they wouldn't have been persecuted because they could have sided with um, a leader who would have, who would have uh, promoted the union of church and state, such as Wingley or Luther. And so um, the Anabaptists were persecuted because they didn't buy into that. In the Nicene Council, then, we have government and state united within the church. We see in verse 12 that Jesus comes to this church. In verse 12, we see Jesus comes to this church with a two-edged sword. We also read of the two-edged sword in um, the first chapter of Revelation, and we also read of the two-edged sword in uh, chapter 19 of Revelation. Jesus with the two edged sword is always a sword of judgment, and a sword of judgment and a sword of justice. And so God was bringing this two edged sword, and it's a sword of judgment and division. Verse 14, we have this church casting a stumbling block. It was casting a stumbling block. Um, before the children of Israel. Um, and if you follow, uh, and I know, I don't want to say just a lot of negative things this morning concerning the Roman Catholic Church, because there are good things that, and we'll talk about some of that, but the, but the, the Roman Catholic Church distorted, distorted the, the view of, of salvation. And so now forgiveness of sins was associated with the payment of money and going to the priest and so on. It was, it was the distortion of Christianity. And the common people just bought into it. The common people just bought into it and didn't know better. Well, most of them couldn't read and the church actually had some, some um, part in causing people to be illiterate. And um, the people couldn't read and so they weren't able to read their Bibles. And, but they were um, it cast a stumbling block for God's people. And in this church and also in the Church of Tire, I think it's important to recognize that one of, the, one of the things that prompts God's judgment on a people is when Christianity is being misrepresented. When things are done in the name of Jesus that are not, consistent with Scripture, that brings God's judgment. God does not like the – you know, even, even, uh, heathen, even heathen people will not suffer the judgment that a Christian does who misrepresents the gospel, re- misrepresents the plan of salvation. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans is mentioned here in this verse, it's also mentioned in, uh, in uh, Ephesians. In Ephesians, then, we have with the Church of Ephesus, it talks about the deeds of the Nicolaitans and how the, the Ephesian church was commended for hating the deeds of the, of the Nicolaitans. In this passage with this church, we, we have the next level where we are addressing the doctrine Of the Nicolaitans, and and I don't, you know, for me, it's a little bit hard to understand how this was such a big deal to God. For instance, Uh, the Nicolaitans were those who would set themselves over God's people, and I think they were actually um, they would have. um, So, in, in Second Peter, we have the teaching that we're not as as shepherds. Or as pastors, we're not to be lords over God's people. The Nicolaitans did that. They were lords over God's people, and God hated them. God didn't, God didn't like the fact that God's people, the pastors, were being lords over God's people. Uh, in the Bible, we, we, have, um, uh, we have church leaders referred to as elders, as deacons, and bishops and all of those words have at least some connotation of the leader being a servant. The idea of being lords over God's people was was repulsive to God. He didn't want those kind of church leaders. And so I think it's something to really really think about. The doctrine of the of the nicolaitans was the doctrine of of, of church leadership being lords over God's people. In, uh, during We can easily see that, how that took place in the church, the Roman church, during the Dark Ages and even during this time. You have the rise of the papacy and uh, the fact that the, the priests were almost infallible. We'll get into that a little bit more with the doctrine or uh, with the Church of the Thyatira. Um, And then we also have in verse 12, we also have the uh, sword coming through there, the two-edged sword. Uh, we also have that in uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, a sword, a sword in the mouth of, uh, of Jesus. And so there's judgment. There's judgment coming for those who uh, are following the deeds of the Nicolaitans or the teachings of Balaam. Balaam uh, had a way of seducing Israel to commit fornication with the Moabites, and so he brought judgment on Israel because of that. I'd like to look at at the church of Thyatira, and that church represents church history from about 500 to about 1500 to the time of the Reformation. Lydia, a seller of purple from Acts chapter 16, was from this, church, from this uh, city. She was from this city. This city was located in a rich, fertile valley, about 35 miles southeast of Pergamos. Um, it was known for its many trades, a very, very prosperous city, known for its many trades, especially trades in fabric. And so we have Lydia also then being a seller of purple fabric, and so she was... Uh, part of those of those trades that were taking place. The name per, uh, Thyatira means, um, it means unweary, unweary of sacrifice. Unweary of sacrifice. You think about, you think about the Roman church and all the ceremonies and the rituals and uh, and uh, all the things that they did in their worship services and so on, there was just no end to their rituals and ceremonies. And so the name of, the, of this church means they never got tired of doing those things. They just never got tired of doing those things. And many, many rituals and ceremonies. And um, we were, I had the privilege of being at a, a Catholic um, funeral some years back. And, and I was amazed, I was amazed at all the things that they did in the connection with this funeral, you know. So just no end, no end to rituals and ceremonies. And so the church, uh, the word means um, unweary of sacrifices. Jesus appears to the church in verse 18 as the Son of God with eyes of a fl- eyes like unto a flame of fire and feet that are like fine brass. And we have Jesus appearing in, to John in, Gen- in uh, Revelation 1 in the same way. Um, this is the only place in the book of Revelation that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. All the other places He's referred to as Son of Man. It's important to think about Jesus as being Son of God here because He knows, uh, verse 19 says, I know thy works, I know thy charity, thy service, thy faith, thy patience. And again He uses the word works, the last to be more than the first. Jesus is Son of God is all-knowing. He knew everything about this church. He knows everything about every church. But in this church in particular, I find this church, many aspects of this church, somewhat parallel the church of Laodicea, which is the last of the seven churches. Um, A lot of things parallel the the work, uh, the church of Laodicea. And it's also interesting to me that we have more written about this church than any other church from the seven churches. But this church was also probably the furthest from the apostolic church, as we find that in the beginning of um, soon after or the years after Pentecost, it was probably a church that was about the furthest from that. The other thing that's that's really interesting is in verse 19. We have, and let's think about this as we as we think about. Um, about correcting each other in the church. We have more good said about this church in verse 19 than than, uh, most of the other churches. And yet we find that this church was probably the furthest from the apostolic church, as we find that like at the time of Pentecost. but. The, uh, the commentator I was reading said, said it this way, that if we would focus, if, okay, so somebody needs correction or whatever. If we would focus on all the good things about the person, we would soon find that maybe the ideas of, that need correction aren't quite so big after all. We find that coming through here in this verse. In verse 20, then we have the other side coming through, the things that need correcting. Now suffers the woman Jezebel who hath called herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I, I find, and one of the, uh, there's another church that also addresses this idea of immorality and things sacrificed to idols. But if you go back to Acts 15, this was something that the, the apostles put in place in Acts 15. And we still have churches that are being held to that standard. So Thyatira would have been, what, 1, 1,000, 1,300 years after, after Acts 15. They're still being held to that standard. In Acts 15, we, they said um, when they were t- looking at what the Gentiles, what would be required of Gentiles, they said, they said this is the minimum: fornication, things suffer, uh, you don't, things eat with, don't eat meat with blood, and don't eat meat that or that was sacrificed to idols. And so we have that coming through here again in this uh, with this church, and another church also has that. Verse uh, 22, uh, I will cast her into a bed and with them that commit for, um, adul- adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their, of their deeds. Immorality was rampant during, in the church, immorality was rampant during this time in church history. Immorality was rampant. Um, many of the priests, I shouldn't say many, Some of the priests who were never, they were never to be married, were having children. Felix Mons, one of the uh, original Anabaptists, we would, you know, the original baptism. Felix Mons was the son of a Catholic priest and um, was raised in that way. Again, we have a church, we have a church that is misrepresenting Christianity. We have a church that is misrepresenting Christianity. I see I just have a few minutes left yet, but I want to talk about that a little bit. I just want to talk about that a little bit. A church that is misrepresenting Christianity is an abomination to God. God does not appreciate that. You think about, you think about um, Christianity as we know today in, in, our, in our nation and you think of the many ways that Christianity is being re- misrepresented today and I'd like to think that we are not, we're removed from that, you know. Our church is removed from that, it's out there in the mainline churches or whatever. But we can be influenced, we can be influenced in that way. But fifty years ago, fifty years ago, Supreme Court, Supreme Court made a ruling that legalized abortion, and that was done around the same time that most mainline churches were allowing divorce and remarriage. The moral moral issues of, of of a church and the moral issues of government run on parallel tracks. And I believe that if the church could have been straight on its view of divorce and remarriage, the Supreme Court would have never had to make a decision on abortion. And you see that kind of thing filtering through many, many moral issues. And most times when moral issues are presented to government, they don't have what it takes to, with, to, to, hold, to hold that, to keep, from, to keep wrong decisions from being made. They don't have what it takes to do that. But bef- even before divorce and remarriage came up in the church, even before that, the church was not straight on chapter 1 of Genesis. And if you, can, if you can interpret Genesis chapter 1 in such a way that you can put many years into the days of creation, you will also have a basis for making wrong interpretation from other scriptures. I think it's I think it's so important that we, th- we think about some of those things, we think about where this where ideas can, like this can take us. And um, Ken Ham says that with the Ark, the ideas that are pre- pre- presented at the Ark and at the Creation Museum, most most of their oppositions come, comes from churches. Most of the opposition comes from churches. I believe if the church takes a stand on moral issues, in, in, as we find it in Scripture, we won't we won't ever have to we won't ever have to get involved in demonstrations or protests or try to put the right man in office to influence government in the right way. I don't know how to explain all this, but I believe when the church is straight on moral issues, the government doesn't need to face those issues. There's a blessing that comes on a nation. There's a blessing that comes on a nation when churches take a stand on truth. The church at Thyatira was a a church of compromise. They were a church that compromised in lots and lots of areas. But the primary compromise, I believe, for the Church of Thyatira is they misrepresented the gospel to the common people. Even during this time, the Dark Ages, God always has a remnant God always has a remnant verse 24 but I say unto you the rest in Thyatira as many as have not this doctrine which have not known the depths of Satan as I speak I will put upon you none other burden even during the dark ages even during the time of corruption in the church we have many many groups and individuals who were faithful. And I'm not suggesting that all the monks that were writing the scriptures through that time were born again, but that was something that the Dark Ages has given to us today that we need to be thankful for. The fact that these monks, and the fastest way to to make a new Bible was to have a room of about 20 people who were writing as one person was reading. Think about trying to produce more copies of the Bible without a printing press. And these men were faithful in what they did. And today we have many, many copies, even some that have come from those time periods that are recorded very, very accurately, very accurately. They made very few mistakes as they were recording. There were some sects of some of those monks, when, whenever or before they, they wrote the name God in, as, they were tra- as they were transcribing, before they wrote the name God, they would get up and wash themselves. Every time, before they wrote the name God, they would wash themselves. They were very careful in what they did, and we benefit from that today. There were also groups like the Waldensians and other um, and other groups that um, were um, faithful during that time. Doug's um, Doug's devotions this morning was an excellent introduction to what uh, what I see here as as a problem in the Church of Thyatira: the inaccurate inaccurate um, interpretation of Scripture. Let's be careful to accurately represent Christianity in areas of morals and lifestyles and speech. Live the two kingdom concept, live in the context of non-resistance. Allow ourselves to be an influence in our nation through the blessing of God and through the maintenance of truth in our churches. Well, I see I went over time already, so let's close. Let's kneel for prayer. Thank you.